Meet Reed Lance Rosenthal, rancher, number one best-selling award-winning author, and unabashedly, unapologetically, on the right side of the outstanding issues of our generation. But don't try to fence him in. Sometimes his positions will surprise you, because Reed is definitely his own man, with his own opinions. You might love him, you might hate him, but you won't be able to stop listening. Step over to the right side with Reed. Howdy, listeners. This is Reed Lance Rosenthal on the Right Side Radio. Thanks for tuning in from coast to coast and from the Gulf to Canada and around the globe. Lots to cover today, always is. <laughs> you know, the drumbeat is growing quicker and louder on domestic and international news. Our historical story, that's going to be the history of United States foreign policy from the Revolution to 1900. Next week, we're going to finish up 1901 to the current time. But I'm also going to go into some current happenings on foreign policy levels around the world that you are not hearing about. You are flat not hearing about, and they are all critical. They're all critical. It's all interrelated. And you will find, as I go through this historical story, you will see the seeds of what is happening right now, the debacles in terms of U.S. foreign policy that are happening right now. You will see them planted 150, 200, 220 years ago. It will amaze you. It really will amaze you. And then I'm going to give you the rest of the story. You know, the rankings of countries done by independent studies as to stability. Boy, will that shock you, the rest of the story. I'm going to update you on what's going on with this frenzied flurry of gun control in Washington, D.C. I told you last week I gave you some background Big picture. We're going to start narrowing it down now, now that a lot of these bills are on the floor or in committees, although many of them don't have the text written yet. I mean, you know, you'll see as we go through them. And then, of course, we're going to get into rat-a-tat-tat. If I have time, I'm going to get into a little segue on one of next week's topics, which is what's happening with the economy and particularly what's happening with your finances and your real estate. So a little teaser there for next week because that is going to be pretty good chunk of the show. So let's get started, as we always do. And I think we'll go from Thomas Paine, because this ties right into the show, right? The mentor of the founders. Quote, the mind once enlightened cannot again become dark. Oh, how true that is. And then we have, these are the times that try men's souls. You know, that is one of his most famous lines. And this was a guy who wrote a lot of famous lines. And you know, that is apropos too. And as you will see through the course of the historical story and kind of the rest of the story and some of the contemporary things happening around the world you're not hearing about, these are times that are trying men's souls, not just here in the United States, not just in Europe, but around the globe. Freedom-loving men and women who are being subjugated and subjected to the whims of a tiny minority, the tyrannical minority to arrive at an agenda-driven, ideologically-based end result. It all ties in. It's all historical. It's all contemporary. They dovetail. They meld. They combine. So anyway, that's your hayseed from Wyoming's philosophical take here at the beginning of the show. Before I get started, I have a little ranch story for you. And once again, it ties right into today's presentation. 
So we have a couple of bare spots here and there, very scattered in the hay fields around the ranch, where we fed horses or critters, and they tend to muck it up quite well, as those of you who are familiar will know. And in the spring, we need to reseed those. And of course, they get irrigated, and hopefully they grow, and next year we repeat the process in other places. But a couple days ago, we reseeded an area, well, it's probably the size of two pickup trucks parked side by side. And coming back an hour later, here are a multitude of birds. There were sparrows. There were red-winged blackbirds flashing their colors. There was robins, all busy pecking away at the carefully raked seating. And there was a magpie there. For those of you who don't know what a magpie is, it's a big blue, black, white bird. I mean, it's a big bird. And then they were joined by a crow. Not that they are seed eaters, but I guess he came down to see what the commotion was. And the magpie would chase these little birds away from the seed and then peck away. And the little birds were getting all sorts of, uh, why don't we just say their vibes were increasingly hostile. And suddenly, without warning, the two red-winged blackbirds flew at the blue jay and followed immediately once they had launched the attack by the sparrows and the robins. And suddenly there was like 30 birds, little birds, attacking the big birds, and the crow sat there going, what's going on? And soon he was in the fray because he was another big guy on their seed turf. Well, the blue jay retreated hastily squawking. The crow gave a final caw of disgust, and he left. And the other little birds circled around and settled back down undisturbed to eat the seed, which, by the way, is about $300 a bag. So I wasn't too pleased about that, but I was really fascinated by what had occurred. And it told me much about the situation that we Americans and all those brethren, those freedom-loving brethren of ours around the world are in. It is amazing, folks, when a little bird joins with others and birds of a feather flock together. Let's start our historical story, shall we? This will, of necessity, be a brief overview because you could spend days, weeks, and countless shows on any aspect of it. The military and the financial alliance with France in 1778, which brought in Spain and the Netherlands to fight the British, really turned the American Revolutionary War into a world war, when you think about it. British naval and military supremacy was neutralized by the Allies. You know, the birds of a feather flocked together. The diplomats, the American diplomats of that time, which were Ben Franklin, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, they secured the recognition of American independence, and they also secured large loans to the new national government. That was all done in the Treaty of Paris in 1783, which also gave Europe's blessing to the United States expanding westward to the Mississippi. There was an American Foreign Affairs Office from the day of independence in 1776, until the day the new Constitution was ratified in 1789. It was handled before the Constitution under the Articles of Confederation, kind of directly by Congress, so you know how well that went. <laughs> Some things never change. The cabinet-level Department of Foreign Affairs was created in 1789 by the first Congress, and then it was named very quickly thereafter the Department of State, and the title of Secretary for Foreign Affairs was changed to Secretary of State. The first Secretary of State of the United States of America was Thomas Jefferson. When the French Revolution led to war in 1793 between Britain, who at that time had evolved into America's leading trading partner but kind of uneasy adversary, and France, our old ally, uh, Washington, George Washington, and his cabinet decided on neutrality. 
which was enshrined in the Neutrality Act of 1794. And Washington supported another treaty called the Jay Treaty, which was uh, written by Alexander Hamilton. The whole thing was to avoid war with anybody and encourage commerce with everybody. George Washington gave a farewell address that has become a foundation of American foreign policy, although we have, unfortunately, digressed from it numerous times, particularly over the last 20 or 25 years. Let me give you one paragraph. Europe has a set of primary interests, which to us have none or very remote relation. Hence, she must be engaged in frequent controversies, the causes of which are essentially foreign to our concerns. Hence, therefore, it must be unwise in us to implicate ourselves by artificial ties in the ordinary vicissitudes of her politics, or the ordinary combinations and collisions of her friendships or enmities. Our detached and distant situation invites and enables us to pursue a different course. You know, how prescient were those words back 200 plus years ago? Then we have Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson envisioned America as the force behind the, quote, empire of liberty, unquote. It would promote republicanism, which was really kind of liberal democracy, and counter the imperialism of Great Britain. Under him, the Louisiana Purchase was concluded, 1803. It was a $15 million, $15 million bucks, that's all it was, deal with Napoleon Bonaparte, which doubled the size of America and added a huge swath, I mean huge, swath of territory west of the Mississippi River, and opening up farm sites and exploration sites and the fur trapping and all sorts of things. Jefferson also was the first president to put in place embargoes of foreign goods. You know, all the sanctions and stuff that you hear about now today. This is where it began, the Embargo Act of 1807. He tried to force European compliance to America's wishes. It failed, by the way. And it nurtured bad feelings between Europe and America, which led, in fact, to the War of 1812. The British, disdainful of their rebels over here in, the, in what they still call the colonies, the British shut down almost all American trade with France. They impressed into the Royal Navy 6,000 American sailors, off of American ships. And then they further humiliated America with an attack on the American warship Chesapeake in 1807. And in the West, the Indians were supported and they were armed by Britain, using ambushes and raids to kill settlers and delaying the expansion of frontier settlements into the Midwest, Ohio, Indiana, Michigan, particularly. Britain had a, had a long-standing wish to establish a British country a British projection of the British Empire in the western part of the United States, not only to further their power, but to blunt the expansion of increasing American power. In 1812, diplomacy was discarded. The U.S. declared war on Britain. The War of 1812 was a disaster for both sides. I don't care what you read, that's what it was. It was a military stalemate. Both sides failed in their various invasion attempts, the Royal Navy tried to blockade the coastline, but failed miserably because of privateers. But the British did achieve their goal of cutting trade to France and defeating Napoleon. And the victory at the Battle of New Orleans, you know, Andrew Jackson, although it was really not a decisive battle, gave the British the excuse to kind of back away from the War of 1812. And it gave Americans pride even more pride in America because they had just won, as they called it, their second war of independence. And of course, General Jackson became president 
which would also influence the evolving foreign policy of the country. And they remarkably turned to engagement with Africa and with the Ottoman Empire. And the independence of Spanish colonies in Latin America, the United States, by the way, working with Great Britain, established the Monroe Doctrine, which is still in place today. Basically, it states, although our last, putting aside Trump, our last three presidents have completely disregarded it, that no foreign intervention except by a South American or North American country will be tolerated within this hemisphere. Obviously, <laughs> Russia and China aren't paying much attention to President Kadaver or his predecessors, other than Trump. This was an important moment because it made an indelible print on the psyche of future American leaders for a century and a half. And the failure of Spain to try and colonize or police Florida led the U.S. to purchase Florida in 1821. Then in 1846, intense political debate. The expansionist Democrats prevailed over the non-expansionist Whigs or the predecessors of the Republicans, and the U.S. annexed the Republic of Texas. Mexico never recognized that annexation, which would lead to the Mexican-American War, which, by the way, America won easily. And the result of the Mexican-American War, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo in 1848, was that the U.S. continued its massive expansion of land territory, now to include California, Arizona, and New Mexico. It's interesting to note that all the Hispanic residents of that Mexican territory were granted full U.S. citizenship. Something you don't hear about today, do you? Then Britain and America began eyeing a canal across the Isthmus of Central America. Originally it was going to be in Nicaragua, and it was going to be built by our friend, <laughs> the predecessor of current globalists, Cornelius Vanderbilt. To make a long story short, every time the Americans tried to build it, the British would block it because they were trying to block American power, and Britain was trying to cement its power in Central and Southern America. Eventually, however, it was built, and it was built across Panama, the Panama Canal. And this, of course, increased kind of the international dialogue between countries, because as part of the treaty, which we still live under, that established uh, Britain's permission, I'll, I'll use that word, for America to build this canal, it was to be open to all nations of the world, and it was not to be used for military coercion. And that was called the Clayton-Bulwer, B-U-L-W-E-R Treaty of 1850. It was a profound diplomatic solution a big feather in the cap of both Britain and American diplomats. And then, of course, came the opening of the Transcontinental Railroad in 1869, which made travel across the North American continent, at least within America, rapid, at least by those standards back then, and easy. But in the intervening period between the hope and the reality of the railroad and the canal came the Civil War. What a lot of folks don't know is that France tried to push Britain into siding with the Confederacy. But Britain worried that a war, particularly if they supported the Confederacy, would cut off shipments of American food, wreak havoc on the British merchant fleet, and perhaps cause the immediate loss of Canada to America, refused to go along with the French schemes. And what a lot of people also don't know is that the original plan of the Confederacy was to succeed in their succession by enlisting as allies the Brits and the French. It failed. In the end, all wars are economic. It's also interesting to note that the European aristocracy, you know, the elites of those days, 
the dominant factor in every major European country, was, quote, absolutely gleeful in pronouncing the American debacle as proof that the entire experiment in popular government had failed. European government leaders welcomed the fragmentation of the ascendant American Republic, unquote. In the meantime, the masses in Europe supported the Union, the United States in the war. They were all for the abolition of slavery. They were all for keeping nations intact and protecting sovereign. So you have an interesting dynamic going on here that would also shape foreign policy in the period after the Civil War. In fact, it came into play almost immediately. Secretary of State Seward, he was an expansionist. He didn't have much support in Congress. In 1867, Russia, who was fearing a possible war with Britain, decided that it would quickly lose its Alaska colony in any such war and decided to, uh, you know, salvage what it could and sell it. And they sold it to the United States for $7.2 million. That's no kidding. Alaska, $7.2 million. Britain, in the meantime, played its game of pretending to be neutral but allowing bad things to happen. They actually supported a Confederate raid into Vermont from Canada, and they were building ships for the Confederate Navy, including the CSS Alabama, kind of the flagship of the Confederate Army. This was over the vehement protest from American diplomats. Negotiations for damages, because the Brits had secretly aided the Confederacy, dragged on for many years until Hamilton Fish became the Secretary of State under President Ulysses Grant in 1869. Fish, by the way, ranks with Webster as perhaps the leading American diplomat of the 19th century. The controversy was solved by a payment by Great Britain to the United States of $15.5 million, and Washington dropped all the claims. In the meantime, Britain was realizing that ascendant American power and descending British power would eventually result in their loss of Canada to the United States. So First Minister William Gladstone of Britain withdrew from all Britain's historic military and political responsibilities in Canada and North America and basically allowed the unification of the separate Canadian colonies into a self-governing confederation which was at that time named the Dominion of Canada. Which brings us to John Blaine, a leading Republican. Yes, under Lincoln, the Whigs had become Republicans. He was a highly innovative Secretary of State in the late 1880s. He abandoned all high-tariff protectionism. He used his position to promote freer trade, particularly within the Western Hemisphere. And he saw increased trade with Latin America as the best way to keep Britain from dominating the region. Again, economics, folks. He also believed that encouraging exports, he could increase American prosperity. The president at that time, Garfield, agreed with Blaine's vision. He called for a Pan-American conference in 1882, and that was to mediate disputes amongst the Latin American nations and to serve as a forum for talks on increasing trade, which was the real American goal. And Blaine negotiated a piece of what was called the War of the Pacific, which was then being fought between Bolivia, Chile, and Peru. And Blaine used that to expand American influence in other areas, including calling for a renegotiation of the Clayton-Bulwer Treaty. Remember that treaty back there with Great Britain over the canals? To allow the United States to construct the Panama Canal. He also was the first to set his sights on 
what was at that time the Kingdom of Hawaii, a British colony. Did you know that? Pretty interesting. Blaine also began to seek commercial treaties with Korea and Madagascar. In 1882, though, a new Secretary of State reversed Blaine's Latin American and other policies. So all that work was for naught. Gee, does this sound familiar? Blaine then served again as Secretary of State for Benjamin Harrison, and he kept his sights fixed on the Kingdom of Hawaii. During this time, the European powers and Japan, ah yes, the seeds of World War II are beginning, engaged in an intense scramble, I mean, you know, cutthroat, for colonial possessions in Africa and Asia. And the United States stood back, had nothing to do with it. But this began to change in 1893. You know, in the early 1880s, the United States had a small army. And it was mostly stationed at scattered western forts and had an old-fashioned wooden navy. By 1890, the U.S. began investment in new naval technology, steam power, battleships with powerful armaments, steel decking. And the guy who led that charge was Alfred Thayer Mahan, who kind of patterned the American Navy on the British Royal Navy. In 1893, the business community of the Kingdom of Hawaii overthrew the Queen and they sought annexation by the U.S. Harrison, who was a Republican, was in favor and forwarded to the Senate. But the newly elected President Cleveland, gee, how familiar does this sound, folks, was a Democrat opposed to expansionism, and he withdrew the proposed annexation. So Hawaii formed an independent Republic of Hawaii. Unexpectedly, right around that time is when foreign policy became a central concern of American politics. Up to that time, it simply had not been. It was a concern of the people that was blown by the winds of fate, the winds of war, rising and, and lowering ebbs of nationalism. But it was right at this time, right around the turn of the century, that America began to truly focus on the rest of the world. And part of what the public was demanding was that the United States not be left behind all the other great powers of the world and that we start seeking, it kind of launching a quest for overseas colonies. The Republic of Hawaii was recognized by the powers and Japan began to take steps to try and annex it. Right about that time, there was a nationwide kind of anti-expansionist movement. It was called the American Anti-Imperialist League. It had as its leaders Carl Schurz and President Cleveland, and a guy by the name of William Jennings Bryan, I'm sure you've heard of it, and the industrialist Andrew Carnegie, Mark Twain, a sociologist by the name of William Graham Sumner, and all the kind of thinking heads of the time. And they argued that imperialism, as they called it, violated the fundamental principle that just Republican government must derive from the consent of the governed. The ideals expressed in the Declaration of Independence and George Washington's Farewell Address and Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. Nonetheless, Secretary of State John Hay at that time, the naval strategist Alfred T. Mahan, and a Republican congressman by the name of Henry Cabot Lodge, remember that name? And a young politician by the name of Theodore Roosevelt, along with vigorous support from newspaper publishers Randolph Hearst and Joseph Pulitzer, they whipped up popular excitement just to the contrary. Mahan and Roosevelt first designed the global strategy of American foreign policy. A competitive modern navy, Pacific bases, the canal through Panama, and above all, and this is really important, an assertive role for America as the largest industrial power. Remember, 
all conflict is economic. Also in 1900, the United States announced the open door policy, which brought China in as a trading partner of the United States and most of the Western world, the beginnings of the rise of China. By the way, McKinley, President McKinley, to get around Democrats blocking a treaty in the Senate, annexed Hawaii through a joint resolution, which only required a majority vote in each house and not a two-thirds vote to ratify a treaty. Do we see that playing in right now, folks? You know, the stuff with the WHO and the United Nations? and Yep, history does repeat if you let it. And now, folks, for the rest of the story on this bubbling pot of, <laughs> should we say, foreign and domestic nonsense around the world. Then we'll get into some current events, and you'll recognize some of the countries I'm going to tell you about in the rest of the story. So there's this group, Big Outfit, and they do these studies, basically annually. 194 countries, they rank everything from negative 2.5, which is weak, to plus 2.5, which is strong. It's called the Index of Political Stability and Absence of Violence, Terrorism, Measures Perception. Huh, well, that's a mouthful. And the index is a composite measure. I mean, it has all sorts of things in it. For instance, GDP and economic growth, and they have that broken down, business cycle indicators, consumption and, and investment, uh, money, including inflation, government, government spending as a percent of GDP, international trade and investment, the labor market, you name it. I mean, it's really in-depth and intense. They get their sources from multiple places, the Economist Intelligent Unit, oh, our buddy Klaus Schwab at the World Economic Forum, political risk services, the World Bank, etc. And what this study does is measures the stability of a country. I quote, the government will be destabilized or overthrown by unconstitutional or violent means, including politically motivated violence and terrorism. The index is an average of several other indexes from the Economist Intelligent Unit, the World Economic Forum, and the Political Risk Services, amongst others. The top 10 countries, in other words, with the highest rankings, is Liechtenstein, Andorra, New Zealand, Singapore, Iceland, Aruba, Dominica, Norway, Luxembourg, and Switzerland. The bottom 10 countries, the bottom 10 countries are Pakistan, Nigeria, Palestine, Mali, the Congo Republic, Libya, Somalia, Iraq, Yemen, Afghanistan, Syria. Do you notice something about those countries? All but one, Pakistan. The United States has, shall we say, maintained interventionist policies that go against the grain of George Washington's farewell speech I brought you in the historical story. Now here's something that will really shock you here in the rest of the story. Where do you think the United States ranks on this list? How about 99? out of 194 countries, with a negative 0.02. A negative 0.02. Russia is negative 0.73. China is negative 0.04. Afghanistan, the bottom rung of the ladder, is negative 2.73. Liechtenstein is a positive 2.6. That's where the United States ranks. But you know what? It gets worse, folks. It gets worse. The United States, compared to all the other North American countries, ranks 19 of 24. That's 19 of 24. I mean, 
You really can't make this up. Russia, Ukraine, Turkey, and Belarus, by the way, are the bottom four in the European rankings of country. Now, you want to really feel bad? Let me tell you what the three countries above the United States and North America are and what the countries below America, the United States of America, are in North America. Above the United States in positions 18, 17, 16, and 15 is El Salvador, the Dominican Republic, Tobago, Panama, and Jamaica. And below us, rounding out the bottom five in North America after the USA, is Guatemala, Honduras, Nicaragua, Mexico, and Haiti. I mean, wow. And you know, foreign policy is dictated under the Constitution by the President of the United States. We'll get more into that next week. This chart is interactive. It's amazing. It's on the website, on the rightsideradio.com. You can look at all sorts of incredible facts, figures, down to the minutest details to see where countries rank and where the United States ranks relative to all these indicators and all these indexes that they use to come up with the overall ranking. And that, folks, is the sorry rest of the story. Now let's talk about some current foreign policy things going on, foreign events, international type stuff. And (laughs) you'll recognize some of the countries here that we just talked about on this index. So let's talk about some foreign affairs here that you haven't heard about. And I think you'll see where some of these trees, shall we say, of current problems out there across basically every corner of the globe have their roots. You know, this kind of involves Turkey, which is absolutely on its heels economically. Double-digit inflation, all their pipeline dreams, their oil pipeline dreams and royalties. I've talked to you about that on previous shows to take the place of the Russian pipelines have gone by the wayside. The country is really fragile financially. It's largely dependent on imported oil and gas. It's one of the reasons Turkey is going to great lengths to avoid any altercation with any pissing off Putin, if you will. And Turkey, at the same time, is embroiled in all these regional conflicts with the Kurds and in Syria, with other neighbors. Its relations with the West, even though it's a NATO member, they're poor. And the government's assertive foreign policy, unorthodox and failing economic policies, have chased away investors from around the world. And then we come to Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka is in such bad shape that it's seeking a $55 million loan from India for buying fertilizer. And the Sri Lankan Prime Minister is urging citizens to use as little gas, fuel, and food as possible because the crisis is worsening. Worse for us, Sri Lanka, desperate, is turning to China for a $5 billion loan for essentials like, you know, fuel imports, food, cooking gas, fertilizer. And, of course, China is only too eager to expand its influence while the United States chases the fiddle of Putin. In the middle of all this, this new prime minister, I mean, you got to scratch your head here. He's going to hike tax rates to try and increase government revenues. Oh, well, that should work really great in that situation. Terrific. You'll have a really, really, really happy populace who isn't so happy right now. Then we have Somalia. Okay, Somalia has long been a simmering boil of nastiness. And although Trump withdrew all our troops finally from the country in 2020, guess what? Biden is putting him back there, supposedly with a mission to simply advise and assist. I think that's how, like, Vietnam started. Yeah, and I think that's kind of like how Korea started. You know, advise and assist, and then, boom, there you are. 
You're kind of seeing it a little bit in Ukraine. And then we have Pakistan. What a mess. And a nuclear power. Terrific. Prime Minister Imran Khan. He was removed from office. He tried a week ago Sunday to block a no-confidence vote and tried to dissolve parliament. The Pakistani Supreme Court said no, no, no. And he was removed by a vote of 174 to 0. He's now rallying his folks to get into the streets and fight. And the country is teetering on economic collapse. 70% inflation. Terrific. Then we have Israel. So they got a visit from Grossi. And Grossi is uh, like the head of the IAEA, right? The International Atomic Energy, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And Naftali Bennett, the prime minister of Israel, made it very clear, and the rumor's been circulating, I've brought it to you in, in previous shows, that Israel, quote, was prepared to use its right to self-defense to stop Iran's nuclear program. Quote, it reserves the right, Israel, to self-defense and to action against Iran in order to block its nuclear program should the international community not succeed in the relevant time frame, unquote. Of course, that's talking about these doomed and absolutely foolish talks that Biden and Obama are back in with Iran when Iran is, a lot of experts feel, only weeks away from basically having a bomb or having the materials to build a bomb. This is a powder keg. We're going to watch this really closely. Over the South China Sea, you know, Taiwan, China, a Chinese fighter jet intercepted an Australian reconnaissance plane, cut across its nose, released metal shards into the aircraft engines, and fired a flare at it. You think China's maybe looking for a fight there over Taiwan? That is a big deal. We're going to keep watching that. And Ukraine is kind of getting its butt kicked in eastern Ukraine. They're losing territory. They're about to lose a major command post. And Biden, who originally said he wouldn't give them long-range missiles that could reach Russia because that would escalate the war, has now capitulated, you know. Now I guess that's not so important, a war with Russia. I mean, you know, what could go wrong? So now he's giving him long-range missiles. This is when he and Obama gave him blankets for the eight years they were in office rather than weapons. And by the way, Zelensky has promised not to attack targets in Russia. I'm sure we can rely on that. The World Health Organization gave a new role to our best buddy, China. In fact, who elected China to its executive board? That's great. This is right in the midst of who trying to grab health power from all the countries and make sovereign countries completely subservient to the United Nations and who in the declaration of a pandemic and the steps to take to avert catastrophe. You know, like lock down everybody before elections, stuff like that. And then we have Putin, another faux pas by Biden. These are all intentional. I mean, you know that, right? So the United States has removed a license that's been reserved for Russia for many years to repay its debts. I'm not going to get into the technicalities, but the bottom line is the U.S. Treasury has removed Putin's ability to repay its international debt, which is almost certain to invoke some type of default by Russia, which, of course, would be a mess for the world financial markets. And, you know, I'm not sure you want to corner a guy with a couple thousand nukes I'm not sure that's a really, really, really good idea. We'll kind of watch that, okay? If you want to know more about the U.S. Treasury Department's Office of Foreign Assets Control, look them up. By the way, all these international little rat-a-tat-tats you can find on the website under international on the rightsideradio.com. 
And then we have a wave of political instability threatening most of South America, but particularly its Pacific coast. It's all being blamed on COVID-19, okay. But Latin America is on course for a third lost decade, you know, kind of like Japan went through 20 years ago. Peru has the highest number of deaths for COVID-19. All these countries, their economies are teetering. Chile and Peru are amongst the world's top copper producers. And I'm going to talk about this next week in the economy. But what's going to drive inflation from here on is the increase in commodity prices. And you're going to see it. Copper is a staple in all sorts of industry. Basically, this makes for a much shorter social fuse down there in South America and a volatile political cocktail throughout the Andes. And guess what? It's also kind of a stimulus for what's happening on our southern border. It's all tied in, and it's all intentional. And speaking of foreign policy's effect on immigration, there's a 15,000 person, according to the New York Post, migrant wave headed up toward the border, mostly young men who are demanding that Biden honor his promises to refugees. Okay. And finally, back to South America, Biden is negotiating with Venezuela to get oil that we could be producing right here at home. And the irony of this is, not only are we supporting a madman dictator who is ruthless to his people in a country that is teetering on the brink, but Venezuela is a known proxy of Russia. Huh, imagine that. Let's talk about gun control. So there are a zillion bills. I'm not going to go into their details because they are still shaping up. One bill was passed a couple days ago by the House. Let me just give you some of the titles of the bills, and it'll give you the kind of gist of it. NRA Members Gun Safety Act of 2013, that's actually beneficial to the Second Amendment. Blair Holt's Firearm Licensing and Record of Sales Act. Safe Schools Act. Child Gun Safety and Gun Access Prevention Act. Fire Sale Loophole Closing Act. Large Capacity Ammunition Feeding Device Act. Handgun Licensing and Registration Act. Yep, that's what they're talking about. Gun Show Loophole Closing Act. Support Assault Firearms Elimination and Reduction for Our Streets Act. Stop Online Ammunition Sales Act. Back Our Safety Act. Equal Access to Justice for Victims of Gun Violence Act. That allows folks to sue gun manufacturers for crimes perpetrated. Prevent the illegal sale of firearms and for other purposes. Oh, okay. A bill to increase public safety by punishing and deterring firearms trafficking. A bill to establish minimum standards for states that allow the carrying of concealed firearms. The 2013 Assault Weapons Ban. This is a fine sign, especially, obviously. The bill that was passed, which was kind of an omnibus bill that included some of these, some of which don't even have the text written for them. Unbelievable. All political. The bill that was passed and now on the way to the Senate. This is really key, folks. you got to get on. You have to be communicating with your senators. You have to be communicating with your representatives. I mean, this is the time. This is a full-on onslaught because they know the elections are coming and they're trying to ram it through using these very suspicious series of mass shootings that are just coincidentally, of course, so timely as to their push. All right, so this bill that was passed bans any semi-automatic centerfire rifle or semi-automatic centerfire shotgun with magazines more than five rounds to anybody below the age of 21. The Justice Department's ban on bump stocks. A federal crime to possess weapons that critics have labeled ghost guns. In other words, any guns they can't track. 
high capacity magazine limitations I can't even get the details on that but I assume it's rather draconian you need to get in action take action call or write your reps and senators today this is on the way to the Senate the Senate is key and we have a bunch of rhinos that are going to capitulate and that are negotiating right now including Joni Ernst Lisa Murkowski Susan Collins Shelley Capito from West Virginia, Rob Portman, John Cornyn, Kevin Kramer, Thomas Tillis, Jerry Moran, Richard Burr, and Roy Blunt. If they are your senators, get on them. Now, we have a little time left. A little bit of rat-a-tat-tat. Oh, by the way, very importantly, all the bills I just mentioned are posted under gun control on the On the Right Side Radio website. You can go there and you can read these bills in detail and get a better feel for all the stuff, the bad stuff percolating you know never let a crisis go to waste particularly when you've manufactured the crisis so on rat-a-tat-tat oh i got some good ones for you how's this the ceo of the largest spanish pharmaceutical company paid two hundred thousand dollars risking a long prison term to buy a fake vaccine card tell me folks uh, what does he know that we're not being told wow then we have san francisco you know, a group of great citizens there booted out their left-wing school board six months ago, brought you that story. Well, they've now booted out their Soros-backed DA. 60% vote. I mean, he got crushed. So there's little hope even in the most liberal bastions in the corner of this country. A new book is out. I suggest you get it. It's written by John Leake, who's a true crime writer. And Peter McCullough, one of the best-versed medical folks on this, what's happening with the jabs, what their effects are, what the death rates are, etc., etc. And I have this posted for you on the rightsideradio.com, on the COVID page. But the theme of the book is the suppression of therapeutics like ivermectin and HCQ that have been proven to work, why it's being done. Quote, the theme of our book is it's a crime. It's a deliberate suppression deliberately preventing patients from accessing drugs that could help them keep out of the hospital. Definitely look it up. You'll find it quite illuminating. And then we have the Bilderbergs, 120 of the world's most powerful people meeting in complete cloaked secrecy in Washington, D.C. over the past few weeks to discuss disinformation, energy security and sustainability, post-pandemic health, and fragmentation of democratic societies. Okay, I'm sure they had our well-being foremost in their minds, folks. By the way, it includes the director of the CIA, the secretary general of NATO, European prime ministers, CEOs of pharmaceutical energy and tech companies, including Pfizer CEO, by the way. And they met June 2nd to 5th under complete, complete secrecy. They invoked the Chatham House Rule, which basically says, I quote, Participants are free to use the information received, but neither the identity nor the affiliation of the speakers nor any of the other participants may be revealed. And this, of course, comes right on the heels of the big meeting of the WHO, trying to take away sovereign rights of nations, and the meeting of the World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab, you will own nothing and you will be happy. Gee, coincidentally, timed, maybe, I doubt it. Wouldn't you like to be a fly on the wall? And we're out of time. As always, this is Reed Lance Rosenthal on the Right Side Radio. Thanks for listening, and remember, look in the mirror, repeat with conviction and with your family. I will muster. I will stand. I will not comply. I will never give in. 
I will never stop fighting. I will join with my fellow Americans and those around the globe who love freedom as I do. And we will win. Have a great week. Please remember, if you've missed any shows, just click on Show Archive and you'll find all of his shows. We look forward to seeing you here again next week for another episode of Reed Lance Rosenthal on the right side.